Amen. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Isaiah. This is the study we are in the midst of together. Chapter 24 and chapter 25 today. You will need to have your Bible to uh, get the most out of this time together to be able to follow through as I walk through the text with you. So either use your electronic version uh, or your hard copy. If you don't have one, there is uh, a pew Bible you might have shared. There are not uh, very many of them, but it's on page 585, and that's where you'll, we'll start in ver- chapter 24, and we'll go through chapter 25, Lord willing, today. Scholars universally, as they comment on this book and study this book, they divide uh, the book into sections that deal with certain subjects that you can see Isaiah addressing. Remember, the book is a summary of his ministry over a 40, almost 50-year period. And so um, it takes a bit of digging to figure out where in that history he might be writing what we're reading. can't always tell. It's not of utmost importance. It just helps to better appreciate uh, the urgency of the message, some of the, the figures in Isaiah's mind. Of course, it transcends the particular audience that he's speaking to because it's timeless, the message he gives. But it still helps us to grasp what he was saying to that original audience because it connects and it helps us. Chapters 13 through 27 are a very obvious unit of thought or address on the part of Isaiah. I mean, there's 66 chapters, but 13 to 27, those chapters are warnings or oracles to the nations culminating with a statement of God's ultimate victory over his enemies and ours. God had called a people to himself through Messiah, a small group of people oftentimes, but they are in him, and so when he defeats his enemies, those enemies are our enemies too. And that's the culmination in chapters 24 through 27 that we have arrived at. Up to this point, there have been particular warnings to particular nations. You remember the map I had on your outline, and you could picture these places like Moab or Edom, Egypt, Assyria. But in chapter 24, he now makes a more general oracle to the world. Like one commentator says, God is closing the curtain on the earth stage. What we read here in Isaiah 24 completely parallels with Revelation 19 and 20. It's more detailed in Revelation, but the same story is told, the end of the age. Now, chapter 25 is a hymn of response to the victory of God. In 27 and 27 continue this with more. So for today, let's look at chapter 24 and chapter 25, and we'll see really two songs. I'll start with the song of victory to begin us. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, part of this was in our call to worship, but then together we'll go back starting in chapter 24 to see how this whole thought, this whole message is built. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. 
It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us pray. Lord God, your display of justice and victory compels us to trust in you and rejoice in your salvation. And it gives us the patience we need to inherit your promise. Lord, please take this message of your word and the knowledge that it imparts to build our faith and to give us what we need to be obedient, to wait, to trust, and to worship. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 24. And chapter 25 of Isaiah begins the culmination of this section to the nations. There is a repetitive theme in Scripture that we have before us again in this 24th chapter. You might say it's a tale of two cities. You have on the one hand the city of man, a system that ignores God and is essentially opposed to him, set up to run on the basis of trust in man, that man can sustain himself, man can provide for himself, man could save himself from anything he might need to be saved from. It's about man. It's a city of man. But there's also, cast before us, with the presence of God's people, the city of God. That's God's kingdom. That has to do with those who are redeemed by the Messiah, by God himself, who will provide for them the salvation they need. It's a city of people who trust in God who believe in God, who rest in God, who know their sustenance only comes from God. There are two cities in this way. And we have it depicted for us in Isaiah, especially here. Two cities with two different destinies. These two chapters have two ultimate songs. There's a song sung in in chapter 24. There's a song sung in chapter 25, part of which I just read. Very different songs, but one represents the city of man and the other the city of God. For those who are redeemed, they ultimately, when they see the justice that God displays here, they won't say, I wonder, is God fair? They'll rejoice that the justice of God has come, that his judgment has come with perfection and righteousness. And there will be nobody among those who redeem saying, that's not fair. Only rejoicing that we were not included in what we should have received except for Messiah. This prompts this just judgment of God will prompt 
rejoicing in salvation. The, the bigger picture of chapters 24 through 27 is God's victory over his enemies and ours. The micro picture for us today in these two chapters, it's about rejoicing in God's justice and his salvation. We don't rejoice in his justice in the sense that we've gotten what we deserve because we haven't. It's knowing his justice is right and true and not up for debate. It's obvious. It's right. It's fair. That could scare us if it weren't for the fact that the justice we should receive has been given to Christ instead. And so we rejoice. And we're prompted as God's people in his kingdom to respond in praise. The just judgment of God is his response to sin. And the reality of his fulfilling that judgment, the surety of it, as we have seen it in the past and know it will come in the future, that assures us that his word is true. His justice is true and his word is true. That means if his word is true, his salvation is true. That we are saved from his justice by refuge in Christ. So if his justice is right and true and fair, and his word is right and true and fair, then his word about salvation is right and true and fair, and so we can rejoice and we sing like Isaiah sings. But the story begins this widespread judgment in chapter 24, this display of the justice of God upon earth. Look with me at chapter 24. We have a passage describing in very symbolic language, like Isaiah writes, how the world will end. You'll notice a recurring theme that God, in the midst of his bringing judgment, preserves his people in the midst of the crashing world. Uh, The centrality of his love for his people shines through even in these judgment passages that can be found not only in Isaiah but throughout Scripture. The final crisis comes to the world, but this principle holds firm safety for the Lord's remnant in Messiah. The earth will be devastated by divine action. That is the eventual outcome. Verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Uh, There's no escape from this just by the totality of what he will do. Verse 2, And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. Don't just be layman, it'll be the priest too. As with the slave, and so as master. And with the maid, and so with her mistress. As with the buyer, and so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. Nobody in the world's order will escape what God will do when he brings this justice. Uh, All of the usual activity of earth will be upended. Everyone will be impacted. There's no low man on the totem pole anymore. Everybody is impacted by what God works. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. The world system as we know it will cease. The city of man will be brought low. The end. What seems full and active and prosperous and fruitful and teeming with life and activity and commerce and interaction, it will be empty and it will be desolate when God visits his justice upon the earth, the city of man. Sin finally accounted for 
in the form of a curse. Look at verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. Even those who we thought untouchable, they will languish. And the earth is described as defiled as this happens because its sin will be exposed. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. What a graphic depiction of this last judgment, of this coming of God to visit the city of man, who has said in the face of God that they will rule themselves. They'll do it their way. They'll run it their way. Two songs are sung for two different cities. The first song is for the city of man on the day of God's visitation, and we have it in the text before us, starting in verse 7. And note the futility of what the song says. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. No more party, no more living for themselves. And notice how it describes the wine, not a bad thing in Scripture, rather it's a blessing for the people of God to rejoice in their salvation, but The wine is given its own life because it's dependent upon in a different way. It's a description of where their devotion was. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine stilled, the noise of the jubilant ceased, the mirth of the lyre stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. No more celebration of man. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. A terrible, futile song depicting exactly what the sentiment of the people will be when God visits them. And they'll be sorry that there's no more wine to drown them in their thoughts, to keep from them the reality of what will come. They'll look for wine. They'll look for it to numb them to the impact of this visitation, but they will find it not. And there's an outcry for the lack of wine. It's not an outcry for repentance. It's an outcry for something that will numb the pain of the judgment they deserve. Isaiah as one commentator said, projects onto our mental screens his vision of a world in ultimate chaos. The futile, depressing, sad song of the city fades, but it will be replaced by a different song. And in the middle of this picture of judgment, we have the remnant again. We have the picture of the people of God who are seeing the same thing everybody else is seeing, and they have a different take on it. And it's hard, and it's difficult, but it's temporal, and they know it, and they see that it's right. They see the justice of God, and they don't say, boy, this should not happen, or God is unfair. That's not the response of the faithful when God brings his judgment. It says in verse 13, For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when a grape, the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of 
glory to the righteous one. Not weeping and gnashing of teeth from the people of God. It's this is right. God should clear his name. The nations have run his name through the, through the mud for all these centuries. And now, finally, God will justify himself. He's given plenty of time, plenty of warning, centuries of it. And now, finally, God will no longer take it. And the people of God will love it. The remnant will praise God despite the destruction of the city of man. In the midst of this picture is a final desolation, a song of praise. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord. The justice of God will prompt the glory of God. For those who have been waiting for God's visitation, when it comes, we will be prompted to worship. The chapter ends with great grief over the treachery of mankind and its outcome. When this visitation comes, there will be man looking to man for salvation, but man won't have it. They never have had it. But they'll really see the treachery of it all and the empty promises of man to one another. And we find this in the second part of verse 16. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. Because that's what traitors do. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit of the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. There is no escape. Man's earthly devotion is totally futile and helpless to save them. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. The earth is broken up in moral and spiritual crisis. And in a picture that's really reminiscent of the language of Genesis when Moses writes about the flood that came upon the earth. We read in the second part of verse 18, For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. What an alarming picture this is to us. But imagine if you are one of the ancients. In ancient paganism, uh, the religions around Israel, they believed that the earth was eternal. It always had been. It's all there really was. Uh, in fact, we'll come and go, but the mountains are always there. The earth is always there. And, and this description by the prophet is that God will take the earth and just crush it. That's what he'll do. That's got to be shocking because people, they believe in themselves and their existence on this eternal place. It's like the earth is its parents. The earth is its mother. That kind of thinking. You remember back in the 70s and the 80s when Carl Sagan's show would come on and he would always open the show with what statement? The cosmos. All that there is and all there ever was and all there ever will be. Even when he was dying of cancer, people wrote him letters telling me they were praying for him. And he said, thank you, but there's no need because there's nothing, nothing beyond the physical universe. So when the prophet says, I'll take the physical universe that you have your faith in, and I will crush it, that would shake them, that would alarm them. Behold, it says in the first verse that we read in chapter 24, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. Now in verse 20, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut. You can imagine a hut in a hurricane swaying to and fro so precariously ready to fall over. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. The earth shaken by the weight of its transgressions. You can imagine a, imagine a power lifter. Have you ever seen a, a power lifter, a huge guy? 
and he picks up this weight and he jerks it up to his shoulders and puts it over his head and gets his legs up underneath him. But you can see when something's about to go wrong. The weight shifts in a certain way. He doesn't have the strength to hold it. And he starts to move. And everybody's scared. And for good reason. He's got a lot of weight over his head. And he can't hold it. And he's shifting to and fro. And eventually he's going to fall with it and has to get it out of his way lest it crush him. The earth is under the weight of its transgressions now in full exposure as God visits. The earth is shaken by the weight of its transgressions. They lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not, will not rise again. The end of waiting finally comes when justice is done, and the king asserts his reign, starting at verse 21. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. So on that day, the final judgment will not just happen on earth. He'll turn to the demonic host and all those who had ruled at some level of freedom, at least perceived by them, and he will turn to the heavenly host who have rebelled against him, and he will crush them as well. And the kings of the earth and the heavenly hosts, they will not be able to escape. They will be gathered together, in verse 22, as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. The Lord's victory on earth. Divine visitation in the heavens and the earth. There is no possibility of escape. All the powers of earth will be removed. With all the earth shaken and creation disgraced, God reigns gloriously. And here's the beauty. This is heavy. But there's still time. We've once again been given this message so that the city of man could be saved. So the people who live in that city, you can tell them this is true. In all the things we fill our lives with, what's more important than letting them know what will come? I know there's many ways to say it, but people need salvation. And there's still time. God's given us his glorious word. And it's been 2,700 years that we've had this one to keep proclaiming it so that people can know how they could be saved from this. So on that day, it will be sure when justice comes, no one will be able to say, this isn't fair. And the people of God will say, finally, we've waited for this. We believe this. And that understanding is what drives chapter 25. The song of the city of man is depressing. It's revealing But the song of the city of God is exhilarating and encouraging. What's the right response to God's justice and judgment to come? A hymn of praise. That's exactly what we have. As the choir director Isaiah writes a psalm, as it were, that's what we have in chapter 25. A worldwide song entitled, Glory to the Righteous One, you might say. Franz Dalich, commenting on the 25th chapter of Isaiah, says the prophet transported to the end of time, the end of days, commemorates what he has seen in psalms and in in songs. Look there with me, the first verse of chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. See, the redeemed's response to the judgment of God isn't, whoa, look at what you did in judgment. It's, you've been gracious. You have wonderful plans from of old, and you have exacted them, and I'm a beneficiary of them, and that's what comes to my mind when I see the just judgment of God. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. All these rising movements that thought they were greater and better than you, you put down finally and exalted your name. 
And the reproach is no longer on your people any longer. Verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations, they will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. And that's a descriptor of the vast majority of those people who claim the name of Christ on this earth. They're not numbered among the prosperous. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Isaiah acts as this choral leader of the church of the future, praising God for what he's done. Praise for the destruction of the enemies of God and the salvation of his people. God's judgment and destruction, though, are never God's last words when we read them in Scripture. They pave the way for the hope and redemption we have in the Messiah to come for Isaiah. And when John writes the same kind of thing in Revelation, it's about the Messiah who has come. Redemption and deliverance are not for Israel alone, but for all the peoples. That's the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant. And look what he does. He makes a feast for all the redeemed. This is something God commonly does in Scripture. It gives us a picture of a meal that he feeds us because we're hungry and we need food because we cannot live without food. So he sustains us and he feeds us and he grows us and he saves us by what's there. And all the peoples of earth will be represented when he comes on this day. And he serves them nothing but the best. It says in verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, a rich food full of marrow of aged wine well refined. God serving us a meal. It's a reminder of who provides, who sustains, who saves. That's what the Passover meal was. When he redeems the people of God out of Egypt, he gives them a meal to remember his salvation by, his redemption by. So when Jesus comes and takes the cup and the bread reminiscent of the Passover and says he is the Passover lamb, it's a description of how God provides for us, sustains us, and saves us by the work of Christ represented in the elements. And you know what Jesus says about that meal. He took bread, it says in Matthew 26, after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink all of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 6 in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Exodus 12 is a celebration of the escape from death in Egypt. The Lord's Supper is a picture of our salvation from death, eternal death, because of Jesus' sacrifice. In Revelation 19, in Isaiah 25, depicts the marriage supper of the Lamb of God himself. And communion every week is a foretaste of what is eternal. It's like when we come into worship for this time, even if we go a bit over time some Sundays, we are breaking into eternity and touching base with an eternal praise of God. We get to partake of a meal that reminds us of what is to come. It says in verse 7, as a glorious fruit or outcome of this great blessing we have received. 
and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. It's the end of death. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. His people will no longer be reproached. His no, people will no longer be persecuted or put down for their faith in Christ. It will be swallowed up in this promise of everlasting life. Joy and final salvation. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. What a confession we will have to make. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is what we've been waiting for in ultimate sense. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. We can surmise from this that at the time Isaiah is giving this particular portion of the message, Moab must have been the particular thorn in their side. Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. The thing you think is so powerful, so attacking of the people of God now, it will be trampled down like straw in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim the enemies. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. In the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. Edward Young writes a great commentary on Isaiah. He characterizes chapter 25 as a Zion hymn expressing a universal hope centered on the city as a magnet to the whole world. But one might rightly say, how can we know what Isaiah says here will come to pass? How can we be sure? This is huge what he's saying. How can we be positive? Well, I would say to you, that we have already read Isaiah make prophecies about surrounding nations that come to pass 50 to 100 years after he dies. We have that. We also have the fact that Isaiah makes prophecies that we have read already about empires that didn't exist when he wrote about them to be taken by other empires that didn't exist either that took place 150 to 200 years after he dies. If that was not enough, Isaiah makes prophecies about Messiah down to the most minuscule detail. 700 years before, Isaiah predicts that Messiah will be born of a virgin. Messiah will have a Galilean ministry, even pinpoints the part of Israel, a part under duress at that point, not even part of Israel. That's where his ministry will be. Isaiah, 700 years before, predicts that the Messiah will be an heir to the throne of David. He will have his way prepared by another prophet we know to be John the Baptist. He will be spat on and struck, Isaiah even says in detail, 700 years prior. He will be exalted. He will be disfigured by suffering. He will make a blood atonement for his people. He will be widely rejected. He will bear our sins and our sorrows. He will be our substitute. All different prophecies about the same Messiah 700 years before. He will voluntarily accept our guilt and punishment for sin. Gentiles will seek him. 
He will be silent before his accusers. He will save us who believe in him. He will die with transgressors. He will heal the brokenhearted. God's spirit will rest upon him. He will be buried in a rich man's tomb, he says. He will judge the earth with, the, with righteousness. You better believe that what Isaiah says will happen. Because it will. The world can be divided today probably in very basic terms when you think of religious and philosophical groups. And I know it's more complex, but in general. The world can be divided into six basic groups. Call them religious or philosophical groupings, belief systems, worldviews. There's Hindus, there's Buddhists, there's Jews, there's Muslims, Christians, and a group that you might call irreligious. They might be part of one of those groups, but when push comes to shove, they really don't believe the faith of those groups' teachings. Hinduism and Buddhism, Buddhism's pretty small, but it's made popular because of its monks and its Dalai Lama and so forth. But Hinduism and Buddhism make up a sizable portion of the earth's population when put together. Almost 20%, people say. They basically believe in a sort of live-and-let-live philosophy, There's no one God. Everyone is his own God trying to reach some kind of nirvana or peaceful state. It really doesn't condemn anyone ultimately. I mean, the worst case scenario is you start over in a lower form and have to work your way back up. It judges nothing. It admits to no catastrophic human sin problem. No one can really be offended by anything that Hinduism or its monks or Dalai Lama and Buddhism say. Not ultimately. Then there's Judaism, which is really small less than 1% of the world population. But it's so well known because of its ancient history. In Judaism, you have a nation that claims a a religion based on ethnicity in the most volatile and contested place on earth, the Middle East. In the end, though, if you just break it down, Judaism is a religion of, of ethnicity and good works. Its main offense to those who hate it is based on Israel, the nation, occupying a contested piece of land. But on the religious level, Judaism is nothing more than another works-based religious system and acts as if man's problem, if there is a serious one, can be fixed by obedience or adherence to rules or a law. Never mind that obedience has never been attained by any person on earth, let alone a Jewish one, well, save one, Jesus Christ, the only Jew to keep the law. Then there's Islam. Makes up close to 25% of the earth's population. While those Muslims who are consistently Quran-based in their beliefs are the minority, their views are so radical that we know of them. They're not really that radical, they're just Quran-based. Virtually all other faiths are the enemy to this thinking. The majority of Muslims are not consistent in their application of this same idea. Basically, They take the form of another works-based religious system, a hope that eventually their goodwill will outweigh their goodwill outweigh their bad and they will reach some heavenly state. Pretty much true of every religion when it breaks down. Christianity said to make up thirty five percent of the world's population. You could split that number in half, almost in half, by putting Roman Catholicism on one side, Protestantism in another, one form of or another. Great diversity, I understand in particular teaching among those who identify themselves as some kind of Christian. But the true biblical core of Christianity is what becomes so offensive to everyone else. Christianity that consistently advances what the Bible's message is over the ages, that God has created everything, 
that man has fallen out of favor with God by sinning against God and corrupted completely and unable to save himself from this corruption, rendered totally depraved. And all people are under God's just condemnation. That's the core of biblical Christianity. The only way for man to be redeemed and creation restored is by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. To be right with God, one must renounce all other securities and trust in the finished work of Jesus alone. The message is monumentally offensive to other groups. All the other groups, essentially, they they call themselves religious, trust in man, man's ability to do enough right to save himself. It's the same problem the city of man has. A large group of people who are hard to estimate by a percentage are irreligious. Probably 25 to 30 percent of the world's population sprinkled throughout all populations, heavier in some places than others. Those who claim no fervent belief in any faith or anything. There may be people like this numbered among the Jews, the Muslims, the Christians, but they really don't believe in the religion or the faith that they identify with because when push comes to shove, whatever the popular consensus of the place they live, that's what they live by. Some are outright secularists or even would claim to be atheists. When they're pushed by core doctrines of any of these faiths, they reject them and essentially become advocates of whatever the majority view is. Ultimately, nominal religious people oppose any belief system that seems to impose something on them. But far and away, the group that is most persecuted, most maligned, most reproached, most attacked, are those who hold to the biblical Christian faith. Muslims hate Christianity's view of the world and its claim that Jesus is God and the ultimate prophet and savior. Their book says to kill and oppress and oppose those who teach what we believe. Secularists hate our narrow thinking and insistence on things like a Bible-based morality and a clear ethic about what is truly right and what is truly wrong. They hate our belief in one gospel by which all men must be saved through Jesus Christ. Even the Roman church over the history of time has been guilty of persecuting biblical Christianity. The biblical Christian faith which teaches the truth about creation, about sin, about redemption through Christ, has always, always, always been under attack. So the message of Isaiah 24 and 25, not to mention Revelation 19 and 20, and the many passages assuring us of God's ultimate victory over his enemies in our, ours as well, it's always, always relevant. The true Christian faith will always be under attack from all corners of the earth until God finally makes all things right. I find it interesting as John Calvin is studying Isaiah 24 and 25 in 1555, that many years ago, that many centuries ago, he writes the following. For the enemies of the church in the present day, 1555, are so haughty that they mock not only at men, but at God himself and are so much swelled and puffed up by their power that they imagine themselves to be invincible. But, in opposition to their bulwarks and defenses, we ought to bring forward this declaration of the prophet, Isaiah. The Lord will quickly bring down and lay them low. Yet we must patiently endure to see them strong and powerful for now, till the full time for their destruction, arrive. Knowing the truth about what God is bringing to pass will give us boldness to declare the name and the glory of God to the nations. This message of God's victory and justice will encourage us 
about the victory to come, especially while under persecution. It will give us strength, strength that we need for endurance and for obedience. By displaying God's justice and victory, we, the people of God, will be compelled to praise God in the midst of the people, knowing the truth about the future. It will build our faith and will give us patience, a patience necessary to inherit the promise to come. Knowing the truth about what God will do builds our trust and our hope in God as we wait. And at some point, whenever that point is, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are moved and humbled by your justice. We are even further moved by your salvation. I pray for any who have heard your word and do not trust in Christ, that you would burn them with your repentance now so they would feel it and they would turn to Christ. And that no one would leave this place trusting in anyone but Jesus for their eternity. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.